Welcome back, Level 1 Coaching Podcast. Drew and Mikhail here with you. Um, we've been talking about a lot off air. Uh, I'm going to kick it straight over to you. You gave me a quote yesterday um, that we kind of dove all the way in the weeds on. So uh, let me just kick it to you, uh, Randy Pausch. Absolutely. So for anyone who may not be familiar with Randy, um, he was a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon who passed away, I believe, in 2008 of pancreatic cancer. And he gave what's called, I think it's common in universities, um, like a last lecture. But I think most of the time you're not actually in the process of dying when you give it. And so he gave this, what is his or what was his last lecture? And then it became sort of a, a not sort of, it became a book that was sort of based off the lecture and also just his life, um, kind of his life experiences. So the quote uh, that I that I sent you the other day was, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Yeah, so how I kind of responded to that, I immediately thought of uh, kind of my current situation in coaching. So uh, for those that are new to my stuff or new to this podcast or not even, um, don't even know that I have like a different platform that I've written on for the last three years. Um, I was a junior hockey coach in tier three in the USPHL, uh, two years as a head coach from 25 to 27 years old in my life. And in March, 20, March of 2020, when everything kind of happened with the world, um, I was, I was exploring some different options um, trying to quote unquote, move up, move out of the level that I was at, uh, had a bit of, a bit of a different mindset than I do now. And we'll kind of get into that, but I thought I wanted to move on was exploring, looking at being an assistant in the North American league. And the guy that I worked for knew a coach in the league very well, connected me with him. We talked on the phone a couple times. He was going to give me the assistant job. Um, and this was in like June of 2020. And he's like, Drew, I'm going to call you back tomorrow with the details. I'm just going to call my owner real quick and hammer this out. We'll be in touch. And the next day, there's a press release that five or six of the teams in the North American League weren't going to play in the upcoming season because of the mandates and stuff with certain states. So they were in a state where it just wasn't going to happen. And they went dormant for a year. So thought I had something and thought that's, you know, what I wanted and thought that that was the right path. And going back to the quote, like experience is what you get when you get what you didn't want. Um, I wanted that to work. And when it fell through, I was like kind of crushed. Um, you think you're catching a break or moving up the ladder as a young coach. And you think that that's the right direction. But the experience that I got because of that was levels and levels above what I probably would have got had I kept my head down, stayed in junior hockey, tried to climb the ranks. And you can sit there and say, and some of you might be like, you've been writing for three years. Um, you haven't been coaching. Like, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but the connections I've made, the people that I've attracted, um, and the groundwork that I've laid for all of this to compound when I get back into coaching, um, has been the actual right path. And it took me a couple months to kind of realize that, but like getting into the writing, getting into like a self-reflective mode, um, I'm more sure of that than I ever have been. And so that's kind of where my brain went with that quote. Um, let me kick it back to you because you've had, let me frame it up for context first before I kick it back to you. Um, we both listened to a podcast by Oliver David in the last couple of days. And 
he went through this period of his life after he was a head coach in the North American League where he got to work for three coaches, three head coaches within the span of four years. So a bunch of different experiences, one after the other. And you obviously, if you look at your career path, and I'll just kick it to you, uh, you have some resonance with that. So if you want to elaborate on kind of where you resonate with that quote and um, where you resonate with his story in the podcast. For sure. So for me, like what I what I like about the quote is that it can apply, obviously, and this is true of most quotes, but it can apply to a lot of different situations. I look at how it applies to you and your experience. You thought three years ago, this is not what you wanted and you or you didn't get what you did want. And now you look at it and it's provided you with a lot of experience that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's pretty common. And I think most people acknowledge that it's true, but don't recognize it when it's themselves. But like when things don't work out for you in whatever way you want, there's a lot that you can learn from whatever occurs after. And if you take the mindset, like I'm going to, I'm going to learn from this, I'm going to get better as a result of this. Usually the end outcome is positive and, or has the potential to be positive. And so for me, my, like what kind of resonated with me and what I thought was very applicable in my life or my career, as far as the experience piece of it's what you get when you didn't get what you want. Um, after our, my, so my, just to lay it out, my first year coaching was 2019, 2020. So the year that COVID eventually hit, it was as an assistant in NCDC. Um, the next two years I was at Curry college in this past year at Tufts. So the reason that I, it might look like, oh, well, you left each place because whatever, it was a better opportunity. Like the bandits, I worked for a head coach there and um, the team was sold. So we knew we weren't coming back and there was no franchise back there. So I knew I wasn't coming back in September and the season wasn't going to end until March. And obviously it ended short with COVID. So then over the summer, I didn't know what I would do and COVID happened and all that stuff. So like over that, period of time, like it would have been at the time, it would have been much more comfortable to have worked for say the Boston junior Bruins who didn't get sold. And we're going to have an NCDC team next year and forever. Cause they're one of the most well-known franchises around here. That would have been more ideal at the time for me. Um, wasn't the case. So I ended up getting pretty lucky and, and getting an assistant job the next year at Curry. And I worked for a head coach there for a year. And then at the end of that season, he got a job in division one. So now I've been at a school for a year. I liked working with him. I learned a lot from him. I would have been perfectly fine and actually wanted to just work with him again because I was comfortable and I felt like there was still a lot to learn. He leaves. That's not an option. So now I'm like, I'd still love to stay because I don't, I don't have another job out there and I don't really want to go through the process of uh, like, it's really hard to get. I didn't realize how hard it was to get a job in college until I got one and then was like, I got pretty lucky getting this. So now to have to go find another one, like I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay. We hire a new coach and he right away, it was like, you're welcome to stay. I know that I heard that you wanted to stay um, and I value that. So if you want to be here, like this is your job. So I stayed. And so now in three years, I worked for three different head coaches. And then at the end of last year, um, I, I don't know that I was necessarily looking to leave Curry, but the opportunity at Tufts came up and our head coach at Curry knew the head coach of Tufts was like, this is a good opportunity. I think you should look at it. I did. I ended up getting this job. So now as I sit here, four years coaching four different head coaches. And I would say like the the last transition or the last, the first transition in, in juniors and this last one to Tufts, like those weren't necessarily hard where like they were more like I wanted to do that. So I'm, I wasn't necessarily like dreading it. I wasn't dreading it at all, but the the transition from the bandits to Curry and then that first and second year between Curry, like there was so much uncertainty during those times where I didn't know if I was going to get a job. And then when I had the job at Curry, I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep it. And that experience, it absolutely was not what I wanted at the time. And I wasn't getting 
what I wanted, which was just stability and comfort. And that was difficult, like to say it was, you know, it's not that it was like the most difficult thing I've ever gone through, but certainly at that point in my coaching career, it was really difficult. I didn't necessarily know what would happen. And it was very uncertain um, for me in my, in my future. And that obviously plays a role in your personal life and everything. And so like, I look back on that now and I hear that quote and it resonates so much with me because I look back on this, that whole experience now. And I think to myself, like, it was absolutely not what I wanted at the time, but I am so glad I went through it because it gave me, it gave me so much insight and it allowed me to learn a lot about myself and others in the process that had I just been four years coaching in college with the same team and same coaches or four years coaching in juniors, same team, same coaches. Like it's not that I couldn't have learned those lessons because I didn't want to, or because I'm, or like someone else can't learn them because they're not smart. It's just like some things you can only learn by doing and by experiencing them. And as much as you can hear about someone else's experience with it, it's not going to actually stick with you and you're not going to learn those lessons till you have to experience it yourself. So that for me, like experiencing that at like 26, 27 and literally not knowing what would happen at the end of the summer. I mean, that, that experience has provided me so much insight and now comfort where I'm like, that's probably one of the harder things, you know, obviously getting fired would be pretty difficult to deal with, but um, like, that's one of the harder things being a coach with essentially no resume and hoping that you'll find another coaching job. And then being a coach with, again, essentially no resume and hoping you'll keep the job that you just had. So yeah, I don't know. Um, that's sort of how that quote stuck with me. Yeah. And I kind of want to double click on where you were going at the end and you were talking, we were both kind of trying to flesh out like a framework, um, behind basically what like an Oliver David went through during that period and what you went through. And he was talking about, um, it was beneficial to him to see and experience those three different head coaches. Um, and we were kind of fleshing out, you know, if you are an assistant coach for the same head coach for four years, um, and this isn't like to suggest that we start perpetuating, which is already being perpetuated, like the job hopping, but just how it worked out for him, he wasn't necessarily in control of like the coaches coming in and out of the USHL and Dubuque because coaches do tend to advance. So he just, whether he personally probably got lucky, just like you're personally a coach advances to D1, a team folds. Um, you weren't job hopping for job hopping sake. You were just staying in the game and things were happening around you. And I think that was what's happening to him. So don't get misconstrued. I wrote two books on the problems of perpetuating like the job hopping and the short sighted stuff. So uh, don't twist my words there, but what I'm trying to get at, um, I kind of did a first iteration and then you did a second iteration of this framework that I think would be, valuable for people to kind of wrap their head around. So um, do you want to get into um, kind of the second iteration of what we were talking about? So if you look at it, like, just to make it and I, I don't think that this is actually the value that each coach brings, but just to make the example tangible, let's say every coach, head or assistant has 100 items hundred pieces of advice or insights or opportunities that they can provide you and teach you about. If every coach has a finite number and we know every coach is at a hundred, if you were to work for one coach four years, you can probably extract all a hundred in those four years. And now you move on, let's say in that fifth year with a hundred, just call them items that you're taking with you. What I look at, it first came up with Oliver David, and then I thought about myself. So now you have, for Oliver David, 
in three and four years, he worked for three different head coaches. It's probably suffice to say that he didn't necessarily get all 100 out of each guy because he didn't spend four full years with them. But say he got 50, and that's probably on the low side, but say he got 50 times three, it's 150. He's coming out with 50% more than someone who worked with one guy for four years. And when I apply it to myself, if you just keep the number the same, 54 guys, that's 200, that's double what someone who just worked with one guy for four years comes out with. To reiterate what you're saying, I don't think that means that someone who spends four years with one guy or with like one, like an Oliver David type example who spent four years in not Dubuque with some other USHL team, but it was all with one head coach. I don't think that means it's bad or he doesn't know, he didn't learn good things or he screwed up and should have left after two because it's like you got to broaden your horizons. No, that's not at all the point. The point is just that like, and I think you, um, you kind of brought this up, like you climb the learning curve just a little quicker. Like it's absolutely undeniable that Oliver David likely was able to step in and Dubuque and be a successful head coach on his second trip back there because he spent those four years learning from three different head coaches and head coaches that had a lot of experience in either the USHL, NCAA, or NHL levels. And so for him, like that provided a lot of value in what was eventually his career. I think that of my situation too, or like I think I've learned a lot from four different people that will help me, whether it's being a head coach one day or being an assistant coach somewhere else one day or whatever it is. Um, I think that like learning from those four guys in four years, I've learned so much that I just, I couldn't have learned if I only worked for one of them, but I met the three others recruiting or at other events. Like, I don't know, how would I have learned day to day how they do things? And so I just look at like, if you, like I said, if you just circle back to like, there's a finite number of things you can learn from every person. If you learn all the finite things from one person, that's still good and it's still a lot. But now say you learn just half, so like 50 from four different people, from three different people, you're learning more than just one person four years. It doesn't actually work like that in the very like, limited number of things I'm giving. And it's not to say that you can work for someone who provides 600 pieces of insight. Um, you absolutely can. It's just that idea that to circle back to that quote, like something that you didn't want to happen happens and you can still have a positive outcome from it and you can learn a lot from it. And at the end of the day, like, there's that those are that's hard to measure it's hard to measure how much value that could provide because honestly to use oliver david like maybe it didn't pay off that much in dubuque but maybe now it's paying off with salzburg or maybe it paid off the last however many years he was in switzerland as an assistant um where he didn't really use some of those things he learned four years three different coaches he didn't really use them when he was in dubuque again because he was coming back whatever for whatever reason but now he used them in, in europe and now he's like all right I'm glad I went through that. So it doesn't mean that like in that fifth year, you're just going to explode with all this knowledge you got the previous four. Like you might sit on this stuff for a while and it might come, come back and be relevant later on. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll throw it back to you on that. Uh, let me give you this tweet that I just wrote um, about how you finished up. So easy to disregard what someone says because it doesn't apply to you right now. Harder to write it down knowing that it's going to apply at some point. Take multiple perspectives, bet accordingly. So for me, like, and I know I just kind of went on about this with Oliver David anyways, but I, I look at that too. And just to expand on that, it's like he, he didn't necessarily know, and he may still not know today how much value working with those three coaches in four years has provided him or will provide him. And that, that I say that almost more to myself than to Oliver David. Like, I'm not, I don't want to sit here and say that, like, I'm not trying to come across saying, hey, I've worked for four coaches in four years. So like, I know everything. I don't know. I don't know what value that'll provide me. Maybe, I mean, I have a hard time believing this. Maybe it'll provide me no value. But it's more like there's just a, 
for me, like there's a belief that over time that will help. And over time that will provide me with experience that I couldn't have gotten otherwise, because here's the other part, like you have four different coaches who all have varying levels of coaching experience. So you have, you know, two of the coaches I worked for around the same age, roughly 10, 15 years experience. One was younger, about five, and one was older, about 25 years of experience. So combine all that together, it's like, I don't know, like somewhere around 60-ish years of coaching experience that obviously has not all been distilled into my body right now today. But it's still a lot of experience that I've been able to be around and just listen to and take from and ask questions. And um, so for me, like, I think to that end with, with the tweet, it's like, it's not so much that everything you come across has to be used right then and there and applied to your life that day. It's more like, hang on to things you like, even hang on to things you don't like, just so you remember. And have a belief, like have some faith that those are going to help you over time in some way. And those experiences will provide value for you down the road when maybe, you know, like, like for Oliver David's sake, like he finds himself a head coach now taking over a new program and maybe he needs ideas um, that are way different than his, some of his philosophies or processes when he was um, in Dubuque. So now he's got, now he can look back to his time in Portland or his time in Kenai and be like, all right, I can take this to Salzburg. Whereas maybe something I was doing in Dubuque isn't quite as relevant. So I don't know where that takes you, but. Yeah. The word that comes to my mind is variability. And we, you mentioned like the learning curve thing and as like a level one coach or younger coach, when you're coming into this, whether you're transitioning from player to coach, whether you're, you know, you started running camps at 16 years old, whatever. Um, if you get into this full time or are coaching, um, you know, at the D3 level as an assistant or at the junior level, just breaking in is what I'm getting at. But you're essentially doing like on the job training, like. I think to what my girlfriend went through when we moved down here to Kansas city, she took a dog training job and there's an onboarding process and there's a training process and there, her boss was hyper aware that learning curves um, are different and like getting up the learning curve is different for everyone. There are some trainers that need to kind of have overwatch and oversight for a year. Um, Tiffany kind of got, um, through her training process in like four or six months, they were like, you know, call us if you get bit by a dog, but like, you've got it. Like, we trust you. Um, and that's just like, let's not fucking brag about my girlfriend. That's just like to tell that there's two different or an infinite number of ways to like get up the learning curve. And the lesson is it takes different time for everyone. So what I'm getting at is I think when you're exposed to the variability that you've had four coaches in four years, um, there are four different ways that they address a team. There are four different ways they walk into a locker room. There are four different ways that they plan practice day to day, week to week, month to month, macro scale on the whole year. Um, there are, I, I, the list goes on. I'll stop there. But when you have that much variability and as an assistant, you're one part of the process, you're in the room, but you're also like, you can take this observer role where you're seeing how the team's responding. Um, and you're, you should be doing this as a head coach too, but I think maybe it's easier to do as an assistant, especially early on in your career when you are, in more of like your training for this. It's not necessarily um, your role yet. And th that's not like a good way to put that, but um, oh, what do you, let me kick it over to you. 
where do, where do you go with that? Yeah, I think like you're able, what you said, you're able to take an observer's role and you're able to honestly like just take it all in and not at times like you don't necessarily have to decide on the spot whether like the way that one coach plans practice or the way that one coach um, addresses the team or does film is better or worse than what you've seen in the past. It's more just like, that's a different way to do it. And ultimately like that, that allows you, like you said, write it down. Um, maybe you don't have to write it down, but remember what it's like and remember how it goes or how it went and what you thought of it. And then one day, it, <laughs> I don't even want to say one day you might find yourself doing it that way or not doing that way. It's more just like that could, that could circle back later on and be like, we should, I should look at doing that again, or I should, I'm considering doing something similar, but I remember it didn't go so well. So maybe how can I adjust it to make it be a little bit or go a little bit smoother or run a little better. And I think for me personally, and this could just be me and it could be, a product of who I've worked for and not necessarily something that everyone should do. But I would say as like a level one coach, you should do it. Like be just, just be the last person to speak. I remember one of the head coaches I worked for um, at Curry said that to me, like when we meet with players, he's like, you're, you're generally the last person to speak. And I, I've noticed that. And I think that's, that's fine. That's good. Like you're just listening. And I remember like one specific example we had, like, you know, a player came in, kind of caught us off guard with like a question about playing time. But it was kind of like a statement more of like, I don't like this. And, and it definitely caught us off guard because we just, I don't know, it was like right after practice and um, not some, not like a, a player that maybe we thought was on the radar of like being upset with what's going on with him personally. And, um, and so, you know, head coach was trying to like, explain where we were coming from and the player was trying to explain where he was coming from and they were just like totally speaking different languages and it was not um it just we weren't getting anywhere and i remember finally like i i hadn't said something in probably like 10 minutes i hadn't said anything at all in like the 10 minutes and i just thought like i was like i honestly and i didn't know if this was right to do because i was young like i said i i was it was only my second year of coaching i was like i think what i'm hearing is like this is how you feel player. And like, this is how we feel as coaches and there's a disconnect, but at the end of the day, like what we are trying to say to you as coaches is in the best interest of you playing and you getting more opportunity. It's not anything personally against you or against what you're doing. And, um, I remember afterwards, that's when he said like, yeah, I noticed that you, you kind of are like the last to speak and, um, I didn't, I didn't know that that was a good thing to do. Honestly, I just was like, I'm not, I have like imposter syndrome. I'm like, should I even be here right now? Like I, I, when I was in college, we didn't beat Curry often or at all. I think we beat him once in my four years. So like, I'm sitting there thinking like, why do they want to hear from me? Like, I'm just going to listen. And if they ask my opinion, I'll, I'll be sure to give it. But until then, like, I'm not saying anything. And then hearing that, from our head coach like yeah i think that's fine like it's good like you you listen to what we were saying and you're able to like kind of provide a bridge that we weren't able to gap ourselves and that was helpful then then i started to realize like okay so being the last person to speak in the room can be helpful too and so that would be like something that comes to mind here for me is like if you are a coach in that scenario i mean if you're a head coach right now it's going to be tough sometimes to be the last person to speak in the room like you're expected to provide somewhat of an immediate response when most players come to you. That's the nature of your position. But if you find yourself in a different role, I think being the last or one of the last people to speak, it, it's super valuable. Not only does it let you listen to other people speak first, but it also allows you to gather your thoughts based on what they've said and not, you know, think of any argument you have. An argument is generally one person who has their opinion and their belief and they come straight at the other person who already has their belief and doesn't want to hear what you said. So probably didn't even really listen to you. And this happens with players and coaches. Like 
a player's like this example I just gave players upset about his playing time. Coach has a rationale. Player explains. Coach doesn't agree. Coach explains. Player doesn't agree. We've gotten nowhere. Being that like third person in the room who's just listening, like, yeah, I, I definitely had my preconceived thoughts and beliefs before we went into this conversation, but I didn't have to share any of those. So now I've been a little bit, I've been able to listen a little bit more than maybe either of them have. And I can provide a bridge, a gap and try to be like, Hey, this is, this is what I think both of you are trying to say. And we can meet in the middle somewhere here. Um, so for me, like just, that's a little bit of a, a, a different tangent, but being the last to speak, I, I think is something that certainly as a, a level one type coach, you should be trying to do. Yeah. What I hear and what I take away, and I'm actually reading a bit about this now, is taking the role, and we, we had mentioned this word, taking the role of the observer. So if you imagine that you're sitting at um, like a play in an auditorium and what you were just kind of laying out was there's two actors on stage in a scene and they're doing the scene together and the scene is an argument and as the assistant you're not even on stage and you're removed emotionally you're removed almost a layer physically in a sense and you're sitting in a seat in the auditorium and you're watching and you have your thoughts and they're running and you're seeing this play out and these actors go back and forth and then all of a sudden like you've seen movies like i think of like deadpool for example where they break the fourth wall like eventually you just break the fourth wall you pause the scene and you go hey like this is what i'm seeing you're not making sense because of this this isn't connecting because of this this isn't connecting on your side because of this here and then all of a sudden the picture becomes crystal clear things start moving and then the scene can resume and then it resumes and the argument is solved or the you know the play advances the you know what i'm trying to say <laughs> You're muted. There you go. You're muted again. What is going on? We good now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Um, should I just start then? Yeah, let me, let me clean up my transition. Uh, what do you think about that? So I think what you're saying is, is like, you're, I haven't really heard of that referred to as like the fourth wall, but it is, you're breaking that and you're able to in real time, cause you're just listening. You're not necessarily partaking in it in the conversation, at least as heavily as the other two are. And what you're able to do is move the two parties closer to an agreement. Like it's, um, it's not that all conversations with coaches and players are arguments, but there are, there are times where things are, I mean, they seem high stakes and maybe you're in the middle of a season and you, especially in college, you don't play a lot of games. So you play 10 and you only have 10 or 12 left. And it's like, this feels like a huge deal to both the player and the coach. And so if you're able to, like I keep saying, like bridge that gap and, I, I think of it like you have someone all the way at positive 10 and you have someone else at negative 10, coach or player, doesn't matter. Like we got to get closer to zero to like equilibrium. That's where we both want to live. And it's probably where there's the most productiveness or I don't, that's not necessarily a word, but the most uh, like the most productive ability from both the coach and the player is right around that that equilibrium point. And to me, like, like I, like I said before, as an assistant or um, it doesn't have to always be as an assistant, but just as like a level one coach that's starting out like that, that to me is sort of your job is to find that common ground between 
the coach and the player, or it could be like the captains and the rest of the team. There, there's not, it's not just coach and player. It could be, it could be between two players. Um, you could have like two line mates that aren't, aren't seeing the same thing or aren't able to put something past them. Um, there's, there's so many examples. It could be your two goalies. Like there's a ton of examples that you could use this with, but I think being like being willing to listen first and then speak allows you to bridge those gaps easier, quicker, and more productively. Yeah. And I think um, the other word that comes to my head and we were talking about this off air too is when you do become a head coach one day or um, not necessarily you, but anyone that's in that like observer assistant role that we were just uh, playing out. Um, it's not necessarily just for the assistant. So if a coach isn't handling a conflict in your opinion, well, and you're allowed to have your opinion and whether you express that to him or not is your bag. But like, there's this, idea of, and I've written about it a lot, like anti-mentorship. And we talked about this a bit off air, but the person that when you're speaking there and we're kind of going through the scenario, um, taking the user experience perspective of it's happening to you. So Brett Bartholomew, if you guys don't know, check out Art of Coaching, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, tremendous guy if this is the first time you're hearing of him but he opens his podcast now with basically this anti-mentor theme and it's become the inspiration for his life's work now and he opens with i'm brett bartholomew poor communication almost cost me my life at an early age and now i do art of coaching basically to to help people not do that so, um, Cliff notes on him, like he had an eating disorder, uh, body dysmorphia issue really early on in his teenage years. And he was in this clinic or hospital and just like we've both had bad coaches in our lives. Um, he had some bad, essentially coaches or helpers there that treated him as a number on a clipboard instead of Brett Bartholomew, the person. And they had these academic, you know, protocols that they were to follow strictly. And there was no conversation and there was no influence tactics and there was no finesse in trying to get people on board with doing it. It was just do it. And we can all probably think of a coach that we've had in our past that was like that. And, um, the player side, and you might be feeling it in your gut right now. Um, it's frustrating, and it's it, you might be sitting there like starting to get a little bit angry now thinking about it. But um, there is value to anti mentorship. So um, if you want to jump off on that, for sure. I mean. Um... And I've talked about this on another podcast before, like for me, I, I don't know that it was one particular coach that I had in my life necessarily. It was just like a combination of maybe you, you played for a coach that was really good at X, but left a lot on the table with Y. And as a player, you usually feel that. I think one that's common and it's, it's definitely partially the generation of coaching 10 to 15 years ago versus now. I, I think that's entirely true. Um, but I, I know a lot of times, like when I was a player, and again, I, I honestly couldn't say it's just one coach I had that always did this. It's just like a general feeling that like if you played well and you scored a goal that night or you were a defenseman and had a great game, you you would you would hear it you would be like, oh, yeah, good job. Like, that was that was like good goal tonight, whatever. And then if you didn't play well or you just played average, you just heard nothing. There was no like, hey, let's try to make this better. Or let's like, I know you had a tough game, X, Y, and Z. Um, 
like not that you need like a positive you know like tell me i'm good and tell me you love me type thing like i'm not saying that's what you're looking for from a coach but what that led me to believe a lot of times as a player was that i'm just a player to him i can provide value on the ice and when i'm providing value on the ice we're good and when i'm not providing value on the ice what am i and so now when i'm coaching like and my dad has said this to me for years that like the guys that play the most need the least a bit least amount of attention or the least amount of like personal conversation checking in because they're playing the most they're that feedback loop for them is positive they know they're doing well it's the guys that aren't playing that are in and out of the lineup or that only play eight to 12 minutes a night those are the guys that need the most attention because they're not getting a positive feedback loop or they're not getting a feedback loop at all. So you need to give them more attention. And that's something where like, I don't know. I don't know that I could, like I said, I don't know. I can pinpoint one coach who did or didn't do that. It was just a general feeling over years that like you provide value on the ice, you hear positive feedback. You don't provide value. You hear nothing. Um, So for me, like, now, when I coach, I try to make sure I don't do that. And that's sort of your your word, anti-mentorship. Like, you're making sure that now you can do this and improve the experience that you got. And ultimately, that I think that it works in two ways. You can either have a certain experience and perpetuate it, or you can have a certain experience and decide, I, I don't want to give that same one. I want to give it differently. doesn't necessarily mean it's better, but differently. And that's how I'm going to go about things. And I think, I think all the time in society, outside of coaching and hockey, we are so quick and so eager to say, I give the experience that I do as a leader because of that one guy or girl that I had, I'm going to perpetuate it. They were so good. I want to do it like them. They're my role model. That's fair. And I think that's real. And sometimes I think it's genuine. But I think what's less commonly talked about is I had it one way. And I don't know that that was the best way. So I want to do it differently. And Oliver David kind of scratched the surface on this with his kids. And he was like, I don't know how much adversity I need my kids to go through. Like, I don't want to give them no adversity so that they don't understand the value of hard work or um, ownership or anything. But at the same time, like what, what shortcuts can I provide them so they don't have to go through the same thing I did? That is exactly what I'm talking about is like, we are, like I said, just to reiterate that we are quick to say, I coach the way I do, because I had this excellent mentor when I was 19, 20, 21, 25, whatever it is. I think less commonly and I'm not talking about people like you and I that are young. I'm talking about people that have quote made it that are head coaches now, or that are um, GMs or whoever, like give me that honest, what I think is pretty honest feedback or opinion that like I do things the way I do because I had a lot of people not do it this way. And I thought, why aren't we doing it this way? This could be better because that's ultimately how systems and processes get better is by experiencing them and tweaking them and improving them. And then think about it. You give that experience to someone and they tweak it and improve it. And eventually you move closer and closer to like whatever perfection is. Um, You keep upward trajectory and you get closer and closer to doing it the quote best possible way you can. So it's a little bit different of an answer than, than what we were talking about before. But to me, that's it's all in that same boat. Where I jump off on that is it's an awareness, like the word awareness comes to my head and there's like, I think of, uh, I grew up in Metro Detroit. So I think of the car industry and, um, all the parts, you know, or not all the parts, but a lot of the bigger parts that go on the exterior of the car, for example, the front body. For example, it goes into a die or a mold. And if you keep using it the exact same way and you keep creating 
and using from that exact mold and perpetuating that. So think exactly how your pro coach did it, regardless of the fact with a lack of awareness. Did he do it well? Did he not? If you just presume he's at this level, he has a credibility stamp, this is the way, and then you just use the shit out of that mold, eventually it doesn't work anymore and you have to replace it. So if you're not questioning and your awareness level is low and you're just copying everything to a T, eventually that's not going to work anymore. Um, and a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, eventually like the, the game of telephone is so far removed from the original that it, I mean, you're, you're quite literally an imposter. So I think having the awareness, like we've been talking about kind of throughout the whole theme of this episode, what can I learn that I do want to use? What do I definitely not want to use? And then how can I take what I like and still like, there's still room to improve on that. Um, I think of a guy like Charlie Francis, who is a sprint coach, um, that started open sourcing everything that he did in like, not pre-internet, but maybe call it the nineties and early two thousands before it was common to just dump your brain on the internet. Um, he was kind of a pioneer of that and he made it expressly concerned and people are still copying it verbatim and doing the wrong thing, which I'm talking about right now to this day in 2023, but he made it expressly um, messaged that he was doing this so people would build on top of it and remix it and try and make it better and find his holes. He wasn't doing it so everyone would just copy Charlie Francis. And yet that's what we're doing and that's what we decided to do. And very few, very few people took him on his advice, which was, this is not perfect. Make it better, please. Like it is in your best interest of the infinite game, circling all the way back to that theme. So um, if that brings anything to mind, feel free. Yeah, it's it's that idea of taking what he had built, what you just said, finding the holes in it, improving it, and then remixing it for yourself and then pass that on to someone else. That's like, that's more of what I want and what I think I'm saying, like we as a society, it's not, like I said, it is happening in hockey, it is happening in coaching, but just in society in general, we could be a lot more honest with those types of things where we look at this and go, I like that. Here, here's, a, here's a good example um, that to me is relevant. There's an article that you just sent me um, from about the head coach of Michigan, Brandon Norado, and he talks about the way that Quinnipiac plays and the way that they play. And long story short, sort of, he essentially mentions how it's easy to look at who wins and try to copy what they did because they won. And I think what he's getting at is like Quinnipiac beat Michigan. So it's easy to look at what Quinnipiac does and say like, I'm a U18 coach and Quinnipiac is doing this. So we should try to do it. And his point or counterpoint to it was what you need is a process and what you need is a belief in the process that you're doing. doesn't really matter what that process is. That's tongue in cheek. Of course it matters. I don't think that he's saying like, just play with your sticks upside down and you can still win. Like he's not, don't take that ridiculously out of context. But his point is like, I think his point is very sound. What you are actually going to embark upon trying to achieve with your team, whether it's, I think he says with Quinnipiac, it's their one, one, three or one, three, one. I think it's one, one, three. I don't even know. But what, whether it's that or whether it's his ozone principles, it doesn't really matter. What matters is how well can we teach it and how much belief can we get around what we're trying to do? That's what's going to win or lose games, not necessarily what system we decide to do. So I think 
what I love about him saying that and kind of what you're saying um, with the, with the sprint coach example is like, the point is not to watch Brandon Arado's offense and be like, I want to do Brandon Arado's offense now. Like they, they won the big 10. So say you're coaching out in the Midwest and, and juniors or division three and be like, we got to run that. You, I mean, yeah, you can try. And I'm not saying it won't be successful, but just cause you know, the recipe doesn't mean you know how to cook it. You can follow the recipe the same as some other guy. And it's going to come out completely different because you didn't add the water at the right time or you didn't stir it the right way. So, I'm not sure that the point is to take Brandon Arado. I am positive that the point of his article or his comment is to not just take what he's doing or what Quinnipiac's doing and run with it. It's to take what you're already doing, what your team naturally does, what your team's strengths naturally are, and try to improve those and believe in it and like double, triple, quadruple down on it. And that to me is like, I I really, I really like that because it's and we've talked about this before with that batter example in cricket and and we've talked about it, i'm sure with other things already but it's like that idea that you don't if you have a six i'm just going to use a simple example like if you have a six four defenseman who doesn't necessarily skate the best but sees the ice well has a good shot and is able to defend at an elite level like do you need to put him on your power play? Are you going to try to put a square peg in a circle hole? Like probably not. So don't force that on your team either. It's the same idea. Like if you, just because you see Michigan have success with it, if your team is built of all, let's call them for very simple terms, like sort of power forwards, they're all six, three, six, two. They're not all the fastest guys, but they, they're able to get around fine. They have decent playmaking ability, but their game is not necessarily catered to a five-man offensive unit. If you're coaching a team like that, don't try to run the Michigan Ozone. Like, it's probably not going to work. So take what your team's strengths are, double down on them, try to do them better, build more belief, teach it more, teach it better. And that will probably have more return on investment than taking what you see someone else doing that won and trying to apply it to your team. Yeah, and just my final take, and I can kick it back to you um, if something really resonates. But I think like wrapping up and jumping off what you just said, it comes full circle as a coach too. So let's say you are a level one division three assistant. Let's say you're a head coach somewhere. Um, but if you're taking this observer role that we've talked about, and you can zoom out at any time, whether you're a head coach, assistant coach. We talked about it in the show as an assistant coach, but you can do this in any role. If you zoom out and you're trying to, if you're an assistant and you're getting four head coaches in four years, you're trying to find out what is authentically you and then triple down on it. Just what you, just what you said in your example, but you're trying to do that with when you're finding your way as a young coach. And sometimes you might not know what you believe in yet, and you might not feel strongly and convicted because it's all very new to you and you just transitioned from being a player or you've never been in this position before. You've never been an assistant coach at D3 before. It's your first job, whatever it is. Um, but the point of that is maybe a strategy that you can use that I've started to lean into um, that I just learned about. And when I've been interviewing the last couple of years, I've leaned into this. But when you're hearing something that you have to do, or you're hearing a new idea for the first time, or you're seeing an idea that your head coach is implementing that you've never seen before, tune in inwardly and like dial into the initial gut feeling that it gives you and how your body feels when that's being laid out or taught or explained. What is your body telling you? And if there's this resonance and this like initial, okay, I like that. 
and it doesn't get obstructed by your brain at all, that's something that you write down to go forward with and try in a role where you're the head coach or in a role that you're, you have autonomy as an assistant to do something. Um, so leaning into what might be counterintuitive, leaning into your gut. Um, I know a lot of people will have an objection to that. Um, I don't care. I don't have any studies to cite it, but what I do suggest is that you experiment with that and then you make your decision. It might work for you. It might not. If it does, it's valuable and you go forward with it. If it doesn't scrap it and call me an idiot. Um, but that's like one tactic that I'll leave the level one coaches with, um, to try out if you're not sure what is authentically you yet. If you have any thoughts on that, or wrapping up. So I, I actually hadn't really heard of that, but I like it. Like, because for sure, when you hear something or you um, see something and like you get that feeling in your gut, like, oh, I love that. Or you're just like, oh, I didn't. Like, you know, kind of right away. Um, and it could be, like you said, a question in an interview, or it could be something you're actually seeing another coach do. Um, so I, I definitely think that is worth trying on your own. Um, what I was going to say was backing up to what you started with. Like, first of all, I, I think this is probably the first year in coaching for me. And this is obviously, like I said, my fourth year that I felt like I finally figured out what my authentic self was like. I didn't really know. I, I still think when I look back, absolutely my first year in juniors and probably the last two um, before this year, I was still like, there's still a little bit of a mask on. Like I was still sort of being someone I necessarily wasn't because I felt like I had to a little bit. And this was the first time, I don't know why, I, honestly, I'll figure out in like three years probably why this was the first year. But for some reason, this was the first year where I felt like I was just more like myself and I figured out like what that actually looks like, feels like, sounds like. Um, so for just the first piece of that, like, it's okay if you don't know yet, you probably shouldn't know yet. And the second piece of that is like, as you, as you go about figuring out what that looks like for you, it is going to be different for you than anyone that you work with work for, know, have known. It's just, everyone's different. Like I, I could never go in and be the same coach that all four head coaches I've worked for are. And it's not because I'm better than them or they're better than me. Like we're all just different. We all have different interests. We all have different ways we carry ourselves. Um, like some of them are really quiet and like, I'm a pretty quiet guy outside of having to talk on a podcast, but, um, like I would say probably two of that coaches I work for are even quieter than I am. And they're head coaches. That doesn't mean that you don't have to be extroverted to be head coach. Two of the head coaches I've worked for are a lot more extroverted than I am. I can't go and try to be more extroverted than I naturally am to match one of those guys. Or I don't think I can try to be more introverted than I naturally am to match one of the other guys. Like, everyone's a little bit different and there's no, like, I think gone are the days where you have to be this certain type of person to be a head coach where you have to be extroverted or you have to be, um, loud or you, like those, th that still works. Absolutely. But there are a lot of different ways that you can go about achieving that same goal. Just like if you, if you want to be in the NHL one day, there's John Cooper's path and there's someone else's path, uh, I don't know who's a who's a former player turned coach like Dallas Eakin or something. I think he was a player. I don't even know. But there's 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 two totally different paths to get there. It's the same for this. Like you you are right now a level one assistant or level one coach at some level. You haven't quite figured out what your style is. You're going to work with people, work for people. You're going to take things from them. But it doesn't mean you have to now go and be them. Be you. Like whatever that you is people pick up on that and they know that's like, yeah, it's just being himself. And it's a little bit different maybe. And, and this is probably a good topic for another episode so we can wrap it up. But like people will, your players particularly will sniff out what is not truly 
you. And if you work for someone that does things, let's say they are super quiet and never really like rip into the players or never really get into them, but that's not you. You're used to that. You like that. You're a really extroverted guy. You want to have a lot of conversations, rip into them when needed. If you just try to be this quiet, reserved guy, because you're like, that's the John Cooper archetype I want to be, it's not going to work for you. Um, you got to be the person that you are because everyone understands that, feels that, they sense that. So one, if you don't know what that authentic version of yourself is, that's totally fine. Two, when you start to figure it out, know that it's okay to not be like someone else that you worked for or worked with. That's totally normal. It's going to be better for you in the long run to just be that true version of yourself. Beautiful. Let's wrap it there and we will see you on the next one.